They say nurses make the worst patients. I'm no exception. Recently, I was struggling with fatigue, with depression, inability to keep up with all the things I had going on in my life. I reluctantly made an appointment with my primary care provider, and I was surprised to find out the underlying cause for my symptoms. Stay tuned. We're going to talk about suicide. You're listening to The Purple Stethoscope. I am your host, Devin Nixon, family nurse practitioner. None of the information in this podcast is sufficient nor intended to diagnose your personal medical issue, but there's a lot to learn, so let's start the show. If you listened to the intro, I talked about some things that I was dealing with recently. We always talk about suicide as, you know, it relates to mental illness, But there are also physical conditions that can cause depression. And I'm going to go into those a little bit later. I want to give you guys some statistics about the incidence of suicide. Approximately 15% of people with recurrent depressive illnesses die from suicide. About 75% of suicides are due to depressive illnesses. And that goes up that 75% that 75% number goes up to 90% in people who have other mental health diagnoses or abuse substances. Or lately we don't say substance abuse, we say substance use disorder. So people who struggle with substance use disorder um, have an increased risk of dying from suicide. It's also estimated that 75% of people who attempt suicide have seen their primary care provider within six weeks prior to the attempt. That um, statistic there, I mean, all these statistics blow me away, but the statistic that about 75% of people who die from suicide saw somebody, a provider, within six weeks of dying. And that's a really hard, um, really hard statistic to face, but... We don't talk about it in our culture, and therefore we're not prepared to handle it when it comes up. When people show the signs, a lot of times we kind of beat around the bush or we're waiting for them to come out and say they have a plan, and that's really not how this works. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States for young people between the ages of 15 and 24 years of age. It's the second leading cause cause of death. The second leading cause of death for people 15 to 24 years of age. So we have to talk about and be aware about what this looks like with young people as well as with our older population. I believe the rate among elders, 65 and up, it's about the eighth leading cause of death for elderly men. Midlife crisis, as they like to call it, are highest The suicide rates are highest among white men, but female suicide risks also peak in the midlife age group. Um, Men are three to four times more likely to complete suicide, and by completing suicide, it means they do, in fact, die from their attempt. And this is one that I think it's really tricky. Whites are twice as likely as non-whites to commit suicide, but the rate is equal 
for people in the 25 to 34 year age group. Rates for widowed, divorced, or separated people are higher than for those who are married. Um, So that's just some incidents stuff, you guys. And I'll throw in another statistic. Two-thirds of all suicides are uh, firearm suicides. And 50%, half of firearm deaths are suicides. So there we've already covered a couple things that you know, help us evaluate risk. When I see patients, I typically do a detailed social history. And the reason that I do that is because it lets me know about what I'm sending the patient out into, what I'm discharging them to. Who lives in the house with you? Do you have access to firearms in your house? How much do you drink? What's your drink of choice? And depending on answers to all these different questions, we take a lot deeper of a dive because safety is number one and and it's easy to skimp over things. If a person is coming to you or coming to me because they're having palpitations and you have 30 minutes, 20 minutes, 15 minutes to see and evaluate them, it's very hard to go off subject and ask these questions. But I will say when I ask these questions, when I have that intuitive feeling that something's wrong, there's something that the patient's not saying to me, I can see it, I can feel it when I go there. I can tell you, at least in my experience, it's pretty spot on. So for healthcare providers who are listening, I would encourage you to take those extra minutes to say, how are you doing? Who's in the home with you? What do you have access to? What's your substance use like? Can we help you beyond the specialty? You seem sad. Is there anything more I can do for you? And a lot of times we just cry together. And it's just listening and letting someone know that they've been heard and making formal referrals and informal referrals. So a formal referral is like, you know, your healthcare provider puts in a referral to behavioral health and somebody from the behavioral health department is going to call you. An informal referral is when we provide you information and say, hey, check out these senior resources, check out this program that's available at your school, here's some information about non me, which is the National Association for Mentally Ill, and things like that. And I always keep a notebook of things that I tend to hand out to people, and it makes it really easy for me to do that. I followed Nurse Lada for a very long time on YouTube. I still follow her on YouTube and um, Instagram and was part of her nurse practitioner group while that was going on. And she, you know, really advocated for a notebook. And I'm glad that I uh, took to that because a lot of times you'll be seeing a patient for something and something comes up that's completely off subject and you don't have time to go there, but you have this resource and you can just make a copy and give it to them and tell them to make sure, you know, they follow up. Going back to the story that I kind of broached in the beginning of the 
podcast today. Um, this this topic is close to home for for multiple reasons. I'm a suicide survivor. Um, I have my only sister died from suicide at the age of 24. And as I've learned more and more about suicide, I've learned that she definitely fell into a lot of these um, risk groups. Um, and it's uh, it's still a hard subject to talk about. And sometimes I find myself wanting to talk about it, but our culture is like, oh, that's too sad. That's too dark. Um, people like to encourage and a lot of times what we think is encouraging is not exactly encouraging. Um, religion plays a role. I've had people ask me if I think my sister's in heaven. I, I wonder where that question comes from. Um, there's a lot of feelings about the topic of suicide. So recently for myself, and yeah, I'm going to overshare for a minute here because I think it's pertinent to the discussion. Um, I was just so incredibly tired, you guys. I can't even tell you how exhausted I physically felt. No matter how much sleep I got, it wasn't enough. I was using caffeine to drag myself through the day. And actually, when I think back on it, in July, I stopped drinking coffee. And this is what really unmasked these feelings for me. I stopped drinking coffee and I was devastated at how exhausted I was all the time. It was it didn't matter what I did, you know, I just was tired. And then depression kind of crept in because I felt like I should be able to keep my house and keep up with my kids and work and do my passion projects on the side and take care of my mom and take care of my dogs and you know, everybody else around me seemed like they were getting it done. Um, hello superwoman syndrome. Hello, moms and wives and and people who wear multiple hats. It, it seems like everyone around you is handling their business. And I don't mean to discount dads and husbands. Um, men do complete suicide more than women do. Um, usually it's by a more violent means or firearm suicide, which is pretty wildly successful. So... Um, you know, it's it's a question that needs to be asked in clinic, whether or not people have access to firearms. Um, but anyway, it was like, okay, I made this appointment. I know my primary care provider very well. We've been in this um, patient-client relationship or patient-provider relationship for over a decade, and I was still embarrassed. I was still embarrassed to go in and say, I'm tired. Because it just seems so like simple, right? Get more sleep, um, <laughs> exercise, you know, eat health-promoting foods. And, and there's another layer on it being in the medical field. It's like, I should know this. But I can tell you I was so deep down, I couldn't even like think my way out of it. Interestingly enough, my doctor did a whole bunch of labs on me. And um, I was anemic. I was pretty dang anemic. My vitamin D was low. Um, and those things alone can make you feel fatigued, make you feel exhausted. And so what I thought was personal failure, which I really don't believe in, it's something that, um, yeah, I, I just don't believe in that, but um, it felt that way for me. 
I knew there was more to it than that, but I still, that's what I felt like. It wasn't just me being a bum. It wasn't just me being lazy. It wasn't, it was like, yo, you have these issues that need to be taken care of. And to overshare even more, I've been dealing with a fibroid situation, um, prolonged, heavy, heavy, heavy bleeding for weeks and weeks. And, um, I just really didn't want to have a hysterectomy. I really didn't want to uh, do any major medical intervention, but that situation predisposed me to the fatigue, which caused me to have depression, which caused me to be sitting in front of my doctor saying, I don't know what to do anymore. Everything I've tried isn't working. So I say all that to say, we talk about suicide in terms of mental health, but sometimes it's not mental health. Sometimes it's a physical health problem that presents as mental health. And sometimes it is depression. Sometimes it is real true, honest to goodness, chemical imbalance depression. And so what do you do? Well, there's a crisis line, number one. And I think every person should have the crisis line saved to their phone um, under a name or word that you will remember if you need it, if you get to that point where in the moment you need help right now, you can dial 1-800-273-TALK. And that is the um, suicide lifeline. And I love the fact that they call it a lifeline because in that moment you're really clinging to life. And um, that's the lifeline. It's 1-800-273-TALK. This is also why it's important to have regular um, follow-ups, you know, annually at, at minimum with your primary care provider because they'll know, hey, so-and-so doesn't seem like themselves today. You know, um, that's one of the things that complicates it when it's a one-off appointment um, and I say this to patients all the time. I say, you know, I don't know you. This is our first time meeting. So I don't know if this is normal for you or if this is something different that we need to pay some closer attention to. Um, so, so there's all that. We may have to go a little long because, again, I feel like this is just a really important topic that we don't know enough about and kind of skimp over. So I want to talk about some predisposing factors to suicide. And there is an acronym called SAD Personas. Um, it's not the best acronym in the world, and you'll see why in a minute, but the S is for sex. Um, women, we're a lot better, I think, at talking about our feelings, at reaching out for help. Um, whereas men, you know, it's still kind of a sign of, of weakness, or they just don't know how to do it. When nobody around you is doing something, it makes it really difficult to do it. Um, it's not a sign of weakness to reach out for help. I love it when men get real with me because um, also in our social construct, in our society and in our culture, there's a heck of a lot of weight, uh, gender-based weight on men and women's shoulders. And a lot of men really feel the the weight of needing to provide for an entire family. Um, and that's like the number one priority, even above their own health. I see this all the time. Men who work, 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 never go in and get seen, are eating fast food because they're on the road commuting or driving a truck or what have you. 
And then, you know, they don't make time for exercise because what are we doing as wives and partners when it's time, you know, when work is over? Well, we want your time then. Um, So men um, tend to complete suicide more. Um, So sex is the S and sad personas. The A is for age. Um, And I think when I think of age, I just think of different risk factors at different ages. Um, Child suicides have alarmingly gone up in rate. I don't have those numbers in front of me right now, but the world's different and it's hard to parent children because so much exposure comes from technology and we're just not aware of what all they're exposed to. I know I didn't have television as a kid, not that kids my age didn't. I think most kids my age did, but my parents just, my mother, let me not throw my daddy under that bus. <laughs> my mother was not about the television. So there was no exposure there. But I can remember seeing shows like Roseanne and seeing how depressed um, Di- Darlene was and not really understanding it. And it was just kind of, she was also kind of cool. And I can remember seeing that emulated in my peers Um I definitely was in school during a kind of a grunge or goth, I think grunge era. Um, So yeah, so age, you know, you got to think about what they're being exposed to at certain ages. Um, Completion age is the highest for 15 to 24. And if you just think about like what people go through from the ages of 15 to 24. This is when people are first entering into romantic relationships. Loss also is defined as the loss of a relationship. So a young person who's grieving because they broke up with their girlfriend or their boyfriend dumped them, that might as a parent seem like, okay, well, whatever. Now you know how they feel about you. You get on with your life. But in that moment, that is everything to them. Um, Think about school and this performance-based culture that we live in where you got to get the grades, you got to, you know, score the points on the court or on the field. And if you're not performing, a lot of times there's not a lot of encouragement around this age group. Think about their entering in college. Last week, we talked to three college students in Surrounded and Alone, and uh, that was the name of the episode, Surrounded and Alone. And it's like, this is the age group that completes suicides at the highest rate. So we have to pay attention to that. My sister was 24 and, um, you know, she had gone to college on a basketball scholarship and um, returned home and and trying to um, integrate into a world that wasn't for college athletes. I mean, nobody cared that she was a phenomenal point guard when she was done with college, it's like, you know, what are you contributing to society? And that is a huge thing that young people are dealing with. You know, what are they contributing? You know, they have the weight of the world on their shoulders. There's been a lot of talk about student loan debt. Um, We've lots of talk about anxiety in this group. And a lot of the things that were available to uh, me are no longer available to people in this age group. For instance, 24, I was married with two kids and a great job. I didn't have roommates. We had our own place. We had cars. 
that's not like the typical normal 24-year-old anymore. They, they may want those things, but they're not as accessible as they once were. And that contributes to depression, which is what the D in sad personas is for. Um, you know, depression is a predisposing factor of suicide. How do you know if somebody's depressed? Well, depression is a slowing of things, right? Um, so you might not see them as much. They may not be interested in doing the things that they were once interested in doing. You yourself may feel tired like I did. Um, you may have a diagnosis of depression and be on medication for depression or have previously been diagnosed or medicated for depression, but depression is a risk factor. The P in sad personas is for previous attempts. A person who attempts suicide is at a higher risk of completing suicide, period. If that is you, it is important that you establish care with somebody and let them know that you've had a previous attempt. Because once that's a part of your medical history, the hope is it will always be considered in the future when you're um, trying to work certain things up. I have a fantastic primary care provider. Um, I definitely presented depressed, um, no previous attempt, and I was pretty um, excited you know, that he went to the links that he did to figure out what's going on. And by the way, I feel a ton better now. Um, I went ahead and ultimately decided to start a new treatment for fibroids. Um, the bleeding is under control. I have so much more energy. I'm taking vitamin D every day, blah, blah, blah. So side note, but back to previous attempts, that is a predisposing factor. The E is why I don't think this is such a great acronym. The E is for ethanol abuse. Nobody calls alcohol ethanol. Um, but uh, we do. <laughs> E-T-O-H is what we call it. Anyway, um, abuse. So what does use versus abuse of alcohol look like? That varies from person to person. But I can say if you need a drink to X, Y, Z, you're kind of bordering that abuse or use disorder, needing it to calm your nerves, needing it as an eye-opener, being agitated if you don't have a drink, having feelings of guilt uh, about your drinking. Those are signs that you have some sort of alcohol use disorder. And alcohol use disorder is a predisposing factor to suicide. The R is for rational thinking loss. Um, and that's also a very tough one to look in the mirror and call out, is this a rational thought? And hopelessness is one of the key, um, you know, thoughts. This is never going to get better. That's not, I don't want to say it's a, it's not a rational thought as much as it's a hopeless thought. Life does get better. Life goes up and life goes down. And we are constantly growing as people, getting new tools in our toolkit to help manage and navigate the ups and downs of life. But it does get better. And a lot of that has to do with our own um, ability to reach out for help, 
and talk to somebody by calling the line, by scheduling an appointment. Sometimes you just have to hear from somebody else that your feelings are valid. I was talking with a dear friend of mine. She's a little older than me. Um, and I love her to death and, and she's a nurse and, you know, I was just kind of opening up to her and, and telling her like, you know, I think I need to hire a housekeeper because I work so much. I'm never there. And it makes me feel bad when there's dog hair on my wood floors. I have four dogs. So that's like all the time. Right. And she looked at me and she kind of threw her head back and laughed and goes, Devin, I don't have small kids at home. I don't have pets at home right now. And I work part time and I have a housekeeper. And she laughed and she said, you can't clean your house. And I thought, there's so much shame around that culturally for me, right? I'm like, okay, it's a total representation of me. But to hear somebody else say, there's no way you can do that and do everything you're doing. I needed that. Was that a rational thought that I was personally failing because there's dog hair on my wood floor? Not really. And sometimes you need to hear that from somebody else. Say your thoughts out loud. Find your person and talk with you know your friend or, or that trusted individual and let them know how you're feeling. And they will um, often echo back whether or not it's hopeless and, and irrational thinking. Um because we're not alone. And I think one of the meanest, cruelest things about mental illness is it happens behind closed doors. It happens between your ears. You know, it happens in our minds and people can't hear what we're thinking. And I think if people could hear what we were thinking, a lot of times they'd be like, "Ooh, uh, uh-uh, no, 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 no. You are not going to talk about my friend like that. <laughs> so yeah, rational thinking or hopeless thoughts. The S in sad personas is for social support loss. Couple different ways that I'm going to hit social support loss. If you leave a church or you start going to church and your social system or your, so, your support group is not in agreement with your decision, then you just lose all these people, right, that were supportive before. If you leave a marriage or, you know, you end up going through a divorce and all of your friends were like mutual friends and it becomes weird, that's a social support loss. When you leave school, I'm listening to... um, the Year of Yes by Chandra Rhymes, and she talked about when it was time to graduate from her university, how she was laying on the ground, kicking and screaming while her mother packed her things. Um, because what do you do when it comes to, quote unquote, the end of the road? You know, it's time for you to get out on your own. Social support loss is a predisposing risk factor for suicide. And far be it from me to forget um, being widowed, you know, um, that's definitely something that we see in clinic. We see spouses spiral down when one spouse dies. Um, and so that, that is a predisposing risk factor for suicide. Um, having an organized plan is a predisposing factor. Uh, those of us who work in the medical field and probably close fields like outpatient psych and 
and things of that nature. We know, um, and I, I never want to get political on the podcast because I think your personal politics are your personal politics. Um, but we know for fact that people who have guns usually don't end up killing the bad guy with their guns. They usually don't end up shooting their guns in defense of their chickens or their livestock or in protection. When those guns get shot, more often than not, they're used on the gun owner themselves, by the gun owner themselves. Uh, Sometimes, unfortunately, kids get a hold of them. Teenagers get a hold of them. Um, there have been multiple school shootings where those guns came from home. So having an organized plan is a predisposing factor to suicide, whether it's taking pills or cutting your wrist or whatever. Um, I think any more parents, um, we just need to lock our medications up. They just need to be behind lock and key. Uh, because our kids are under so much pressure and so much stress, we cannot afford to assume it wouldn't be them. We just have to lock it away and keep them safe, just like you would with a, with a firearm. You wouldn't just leave it out on the couch or in the cabinet. You would safely store it in a place where um, nobody could get to it. And I, I think that medications, um, you know, we have to do that with our meds as well as our firearms. You know, in clinic, we ask people, you know, do you have a plan? What is your plan when we're talking about um, suicide? And that question is not a question that condones it. It's a question for us to uh, determine whether this is crisis or whether this is non-crisis because the treatment plan differs depending on how urgent the situation is. I'm not going to release you home to yourself if you tell me when I get home today I'm getting my gun and taking my life. That's not... um, That's an organized plan, and that is a predisposing factor to suicide. The in in sad personas is for no spouse. Um, People who are single, divorced, and widowed complete suicide more often than those who have a spouse. The A is for availability of lethal means, and I discussed that with organized plan. You know, if those pills are within reach of your kids, if those guns are... You know, easily accessible by people who are struggling with depression and suicidal ideation or thoughts of suicide. Uh, it is a predisposing factor uh, to suicide. And the S is for sickness. And that S is is really interesting, right? Because who would think of sickness as a predisposing factor of suicide? Well, I wouldn't have before I got into the medical profession. But when you watch people deteriorate over time and they have a chronic condition that we're just trying to uh, slow the progression of, that puts people at risk for suicide. Sickness is not fun. You often feel feelings of worthlessness and and being a burden and people who are sick are keenly aware of the financial stress that that is on their families. Uh, So sickness is a predisposing factor of suicide. 
I'm going over time a little bit, but this is a uh, important topic, and so I'm just going to let the clock go on. I apologize, but hopefully you're getting something out of this discussion. Common complaints for people who are contemplating suicide, uh, mentioning dying or ending their life. You know, won't be bothered by me much longer. You know, it's not going to be an issue for a lot longer. I don't know how much longer I can deal with this. You know what? I'm really beginning to see that I'm a burden to you. Statements like this. Depression and anxiety uh, increases the risk of suicide. As a recent significant loss, okay, that could be a spouse, a job, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or even self-esteem. Sometimes things happen that just make us feel down on ourselves, and that is a is a common complaint. Um, unexpected changes in behavior, suddenly making a will, suddenly having intense talks with friends, um, giving away possessions, sudden behavioral changes. We should always um, be mindful, even of yourself, that. Hey, wait a second. I heard this this woman's voice on this purple stethoscope thing saying that this is a risk factor or a common complaint uh, prior to someone dying from suicide. An unexpected change in attitude, like suddenly cheerful, suddenly angry, suddenly withdrawn. You know, these quick changes are indicative of uh, mental illness, and if we don't address them can lead to suicide. Symptoms of depression in the elderly, having an impaired ability to communicate. What does that look like? It Like having a stroke and not being able to talk. It, it looks like the heart failure person who can only say a couple words at a time, you know, they run out of breath and they just stop talking altogether. Other signs and symptoms um, are psychosis, and psychosis is kind of like when somebody goes off a cliff. You'll know psychosis when you see it. Uh, postpartum women are at risk, and people who are um, bipolar, schizophrenic, they may have not been diagnosed, but they oftentimes when you see somebody um, having really blatant outwardly action so where you go, oh, that person is not all there, that's psychosis. Command hallucinations. If you hear voices saying, do this and do that, you got to seek help and you got to tell somebody that you're hearing voices and what the voices are telling you to do. Um, that is something I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy um, because it is very real to the person experiencing it and it can lead to harm. Um, lack of access of outpatient resources or you know, not being able to get the help that you need um, I love the fact that telemedicine is on the rise, that people are able to reach out through their phones or their computers or whatever device that they have to get help. Um, but lack of access is a common complaint. Um, we need to do a better job as a nation of making mental health care available and accessible to people who are uninsured. Because a lot of the risks that go along with depression and anxiety are risks that people that have um, a lower socioeconomic status 
have an increased incidence of. So we've got to figure out how to make it more available. I'll definitely say um, look for outpatient walk-in places. Uh, Check out if you do belong to a church. There's pastoral care um, where people really are doing the best that we can with what we have. Um, severe anxiety and insomnia are acute risk factors. If a person hasn't slept in several days, I mean, not sleeping in two days is, is an issue that is something that, you know, we should seek help for. Um, but if you witness that, then that know that that's a, uh, know that that is an acute risk factor and start thinking about the resources that are available and and how you can help yourself or help your loved one. Um, I want to wrap up by telling you all that asking about suicide does not give a person permission or ideas about it. Sometimes people um, just need to get the green light to talk about what they're thinking about and what they're doing. If you're not that person and someone asks you, your answer is going to be different than if you are that person and someone finally asks you, okay? Um, for my healthcare providers who are listening, um, you can do a CBC with a differential, electrolytes, calcium, phosphorus, a thyroid panel, a liver profile, a blood alcohol or, or the alcohol questionnaire, um, you know, urine drug screen. There's a lot of different things. I uh, Vitamin D, again, that was a surprise to me um, that I was low in that area because I am outside so much, <laughs> even though it's not sunny where I live. Um, so yeah, there's the mini mental status exam that you can do uh, to rule out dementia or delirium for our older people. And there's lots of different um, depression and suicide um risk assessment tools. Um, I do like the suicide behavior questionnaire or the SBQR. It's a revised one. The R is for revised. Um, Other diagnosis to be mindful of when this topic comes up are mood disorders. Um, They can be due to a medical condition. Keep that in mind. Adjustment disorder with a depressed mood. There have been some sudden changes in the patient's life or in your life, and now you're depressed. Personality disorders, psychotic disorders, alcohol and drug dependence, dementia, delirium, and side effects from some medications. Um, I went to Ghana in um, March, April this year. And I needed to get a medication to use for malaria prophylaxis. And one of the medications had the side effect of really affecting your dreams. And there was no guarantee that the dreams would stop after the medication. Um, So there's some history to really take, you know, if the patient has been on or if you have been on medications that have side effects that are unbearable. Um, So yeah, there's help and help comes in all different forms. Sometimes help is correcting an underlying medical condition. Sometimes help is medication. And when it comes to medication, you know, you would take a pill, you would take an antibiotic if you had pneumonia. You'd take a blood pressure pill if you were at risk for stroke and had to bring your blood pressure down. We really need to have that same approach with 
mental health. If your flavor of mental illness requires a pill, it may not be a forever pill. It may just be something that you have to take through a certain period. Um, then that's what you have to do to live. Um, I could go on and on on this topic because I do, again, feel like it's something we don't talk about enough, not nearly enough. We don't know enough about it. Um, postpartum depression, postpartum psychosis. I remember when I was um, in nursing school and I did rounds with a military hospital, I thought it was really cool how they would make appointments for the babies like every couple of weeks. If they thought a mom was sad, they were like, you know, we need to see the baby back in a week just to be sure, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, huh, that didn't make sense to me at all. And I remember a preceptor telling me it has nothing to do with the baby. It has to do with that mom. Her husband's on deployment. She's dealing with postpartum depression. You know, she if we tell her that we want to see her back to see how she's doing, she's not going to prioritize herself. But if we tell her we need to keep an eye on the baby, she's going to prioritize the baby and come back and see us. And I thought that was, wow, just brilliant. Um, I do want to say that families are... Friends and families are great resources for people to just talk to, but they oftentimes are not equipped to really help. If you are a friend or a family member and someone comes to you in your family or a friend of yours or they, a colleague, whoever, and they are sounding hopeless and they're sounding this way, um, three resources that I'm going to throw out there. Number one is the um, suicide prevention, or I think it's called the Suicide Lifeline, yes, 1-800-273-TALK. Also, your employee assistance program. If you have one, it's a great way to get some counseling without having to come out of your pocket. Um, and they can hook you up with community resources. And that third resource, um, again, I'm starting to sound like a broken record. I know that. But your primary care provider is somebody who can help you and connect you to services. Um I did mention that I am a suicide survivor, and I often think about the fact that my sister is not here to um, see my kids grow up and see our other nieces and nephews grow up. And I, a lot of times when I'm enjoying them and I see little glimpses of her or things that I know she would get a kick out of, it reminds me that it was just a really permanent um, decision for a temporary problem. She wasn't here when uh, my mom was going through medical things and I could have really used a shoulder to cry on and somebody who loved my mom as much as me to sit with me. She wasn't here when our dad was sick and when he, he was um, going through the changes towards end of life. She wasn't here when I birthed two of my three children. She wasn't here when I got married. And I know that she would have loved to be here for all those things. And I would have loved to be there for all those milestones in her life. But because of some temporary challenges that felt hopeless, she's not with us now. And if anybody's listening and they are thinking about suicide or they're thinking that people would be better off without them or that their life is hopeless, um, I want you to know, I need you to know that that's not true, that you're loved, that there are 
many people who, if they knew what you were dealing with, would move the sun and the moon to be by your side. I need you to know that there's health available through your friends, your family, your primary care provider, the counselors at your school or your university. I need you to know that you're not a personal failure. You're not a failure. Life is hard, and we live in a culture where we kind of pretend it's not that hard and that people who are struggling, um, you know, just aren't hacking it. But um, I can tell you that that's not the truth, that life is hard for all of us. And you're opening up to what you're struggling with may even give permission to somebody else to open up and say, you know, I'm struggling too. Why don't we find some help together? This work that I'm doing is passion work. I don't get paid for this podcast. Maybe someday I will. But I do this because I see a gap in care for uh, different communities, for different people. I see a lot of people not having access to information because they don't have money or because they don't have insurance or they just don't know where to go. And that is the reason for the purple stethoscope. That is the reason for divinity, health, and wellness. And that is who and what I'm brought to you by. If you learned from listening to this podcast today, I really hope that you'll share it. Share it with somebody, anybody who you think might benefit. And send me your comments, send me your questions. It means a lot to me to be covering pertinent topics with regard to our health and our wellness. Thanks for listening to me for so long this week. Talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to The Purple Stethoscope. I'm your host, Devin Nixon, family nurse practitioner. You can find me on social media at D the NP. That's on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and now Patreon. If you like what you heard, go ahead and share this episode and then head over to Patreon to see how you can further support this work. (laughs) 